Episode 100, Scott J. Miller, Franklin Covey, host of the podcast On Leadership with Scott Miller, author of books including Management Mess to Leadership Success and Marketing Mess to Brand Success. So I have no shortage of messes to share. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Scott, his work, his books, and more, go to markgraven.com slash mistake100. Yes, episode 100. Thanks for listening and on with the show. Our guest today is Scott Miller. He is an executive vice president of thought leadership at Franklin Covey. Um, Scott's been with the company for 20 years. He previously served as VP of business development and the chief marketing officer. Uh, He's a busy guy. He is the host of a podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. Guests have included Adam Grant, Elizabeth Smart, John Maxwell, Matthew McConaughey, Stephen M. R. Covey. Um, that's that's quite a list. So before telling the audience more about you, Scott, let me first say uh, welcome. Thanks for being here on this podcast. Mark, my pleasure, man. Thank you for turning your spotlight onto me for my new book. I'm grateful. Oh, sure. I'm happy to have you here. I think we'll learn a lot today, and I know there's some good stories. So uh, the books, um, and, and for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see I'm kind of behind Scott. For those who are just listening, I'll give you a little bit of a rundown. Um, He's author of books, including Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. And he's got a new book. uh, It's going to be available May 11th, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, 30 Challenges to Transform Your Organization's Brand and Your Own. And uh, you can also see peaks behind you, Scott. You've got quite a pipeline. of books in the future. Can you tell us about that a little bit first? Sure. So the first book that I wrote, Management Mess to Leadership Success, really just all focused on my own messes as a leader inside a leadership development firm for, you know, gosh, over 25 years. And it got some some traction, some success, right? It sold about 100,000 copies the first year, which is not too shabby for a first-time no-name author. And there was just something in this idea of owning your mess. Everybody's got a mess. So as a leader, Show the vulnerability to own your mess because when you do, you make it safe for others to own theirs. So the publisher signed me to a nine-volume deal over eight years in the Mess to Success (laughs) series. So today's topic is marketing mess to brand success. I was the chief marketing officer for almost eight years at this global public company. And then I've just finished the manuscript for Job Mess to Career Success based on the ups and downs, uh, mostly ups, but some downs of my own career. And now I'm finishing the final touches on the fourth book called Communication Mess to Influence Success. It'll come out in 2022. And then there are about four or five more. Let's see, there's Sales Mess. There is um, um, Parenting Mess to Launch Success, Relationship Mess. There's a whole bunch of them that are coming out. In fact, the Parenting Mess to Launch Success will be co-written by my oldest son. I have three boys right now. Mm-hmm. And so I got to get closer to launch before I have any credibility <laughs> on the launch part. But I, I appreciate you asking about the series. I'm delighted to be 
response has gotten so far. And one reason, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you here on the podcast, it seems like philosophically, there's a really strong alignment. You're using the word mess. Yeah. Here we talk about mistakes, but everything okay. you said aligns with the theme here of, you know, uh, owning yeah. mistakes and, and, and being open and, and creating a culture where that's okay, because that drives learning instead of blame or feeling sorry for ourselves. Well, that, that's just that's why I love your podcast, why I came on, because I think the days are gone where people are disconnected from leaders. They're on pillars. They're on, on columns. No, I mean, people want to relate to their leaders. They want to respect them and learn from them. But I think the greatest teaching moment that any learner, any leader can offer their team is to talk transparently, vulnerably, open about the mistakes you've made, to use those mistakes, as you call them. I call them messes, the same exact thing, yeah. to teach through them, to use them as a learning point. Because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. If you're seen as being untouchable and perfect and pristine, then no one's going to take risks. No one's going to tell you the truth. No one's going to surface their mm -hmm. problems where others can learn from them. I want my people that work for me, report to me. I am an entrepreneur. I have employees. I want them to own their mess immediately. And if they trust that, I have an open culture. They're going to take some more risks. They're going to uh, they're going to be more abundant with information and talk about their fears, their their passions, their challenges. It's just the culture I want to work in. Mm -hmm. and, it doesn't license mistakes, right? It's not it's not making an environment where you want people to make mistakes. It's creating an environment where it's safe to make mistakes, report them immediately, and have the maturity, the emotional mm -hmm. maturity to share them and have everybody learn from them versus try to hide them or sweep them under right. the rug. Right, because mistakes, just building on that, um, being open about mistakes isn't a license to be reckless. That's right. But even when people are being careful and thoughtful and well-considered, um, there still end up being decisions, whether that's in the realm of, of leadership, uh, deciding who to hire, or from a marketing standpoint, what kind of... Um, uh, messaging or campaign to go with, there there could still be mistakes, even with That's our sad. best education and efforts and intentions. So on that, I guess maybe I'll just jump right into the question that you're expecting because we ask everybody here on the podcast, you know, Scott, with all the different things you've done, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Well, so, you know, I've written multiple books in the mess series. So I have no shortage of messes to share. In fact, after I wrote the first book, management mess. My wife said, you realize you'll never get a job again. Like no one will ever hire you. This book thing has got to work out. So that's why I'm writing so many books because, <laughs> you know, forget social media, read my books and you probably wouldn't hire me before. But I think if I had to talk, if I had to bring together the totality of all of my messes, and I've had a few successes, right? I got a couple wraps under my belt. Yeah. And it really became prominent to me when I went, read a different book called Multipliers. This is my favorite leadership book ever written by a friend of mine, Liz Wiseman, who actually ended up endorsing Management Mess. And you know, Liz's book is all about becoming a multiplier of other people, right? Not to be the genius in the room, but rather the genius maker of others. And the premise of her book is that you aren't either a multiplier or you are, as she calls it, a diminisher, excellent diminisher. Mm -hmm. We're all moving between creating diminishing moments and creating multiplying moments. So in her book, Multiplier, which I highly recommend, to your viewers and listeners, is she identifies nine accidental diminishing tendencies, nine profiles. 
the optimist, the strategist, the rapid responder, the pace setter. You get the point, the perfectionist. The first of the nine accidental diminishing tendencies was this person she called the idea fountain. When I read this book, Mark, I said, oh my gosh, I'm the idea fountain. I'm the chief marketing officer. I believed at the time that my role was to be the smartest person in the room, the most well-read, the most created, the most creative, the most educated. It was my idea because the buck stopped with me that my idea had to trump everything else. I know, mm. insane and absurd. But after I read her book, I realized, you know, I'm not the genius maker of others. I'm the genius in the room. And no one wants to work for the smartest person in the room. So I guess you'd say the biggest mistake I ever made was falling into the trap believing that as the chief marketing officer, I was supposed to be the smartest, supposed to be the most talented. When in fact, my role was to be a talent magnet for others. I came, Mark, to understand that I was perhaps unwilling to hire people who I viewed as being more competent than me, more technically smart, more creative. I was threatened by other people's own skills. And therefore, I'm guessing subconsciously, if I deemed you not as talented as me, which often I was probably blatantly wrong, that I wouldn't hire you because I thought it would jeopardize my stature when I came to realize that, no, my key contribution to my employer was not being the most creative. It was being the talent magnet to bring other palpably, noticeably more creative people in and then yeah. create a culture where they thrived, where they wanted to stay, where they chose to stay. Now, I wasn't all bad. I think the people that worked with me, there was 35 of them, most of them would say, we liked working for Scott. Our careers blossomed. We doubled our incomes. You know, I was not a total wreck, but it was, sure. in hindsight, probably my biggest mistake, which was being so insecure. You know, this idea of imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. of thinking that I had to protect myself. And if I brought people around me that were even more technically competent than me, that I would be exposed as a fraud. When in fact, your job as the CMO isn't to be the expert on SEO or the expert on marketing automation, the expert on Google Analytics. Come on, I can't be an expert on 50 things. Right. Some leaders try. By the way, if your leader is an expert on everything, run fast, <laughs> because like me, they are a diminisher. But the big idea there is just to recognize that if you want to multiply talent, you become comfortable. What is your contribution? And I think I stepped down from being the chief marketing officer on my own volition. The CEO mm -hmm. asked me to stay three times. I moved to a different role since then. I've actually retired from the firm. I still am an advisor. I host their podcast, mm -hmm. the world's largest now leadership podcast, and I write books for the company. But for me, that was my biggest mistake was not realizing I was identifying with myself as being the genius. And that's the security from which I kind of built my position. Yeah. In so, I mean, it, that, that, that moment of recognition that you had that does speak to the power of books um, being presented with an idea that makes you think and it resonated with you. I mean, can, can you think of a, a particular interest or a, a particular uh, situation where you thought, Oh, I was being the idea fountain. Like, was there something that jumped to mind as you were reading it? It sounds like, yeah. like you were saying, it was a bit there's, of a pattern, there's 30 of them right in but, here. Okay. Right? All right. But yes, to your point, uh, lots of times when, you know, my, my arrogance got ahead of me. Here's a good example. Uh, Stephen M. R. Covey, the oldest son of Dr. Stephen R. Covey, of course, the author of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Stephen M. R. Covey wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. It's probably mm -hmm. the 
the Bible, if you will, on building organizational trust. He outlines what are the 13 behaviors of high trust leaders. This book has sold, you know, nearly 3 million copies. Well, right. when I was the chief marketing officer, one of my genius decisions was to put Stephen on about a 25 city speaking tour. He gives keynotes for a living. And uh, we developed a video card, you know, kind of the size if you go into Hallmark and you see the greeting cards that sing a song to you, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, six by seven or so. Yeah. Well, we created a video card. The technology exists to have a video screen about the size of a credit card. Mm -hmm. And in here, you can take three or four really high quality videos. So we decided to mail a couple of thousand of these video cards. You open it up and you got a welcome invitation from Stephen and Mark Covey. He gave you a little bit of content and we talked about why you'd want to come to this, you know, local two-hour event in Dallas to spend time with this famous author. So we yeah. ship out a variety of video cards. Our sales staff delivers them all because they're, you know, kind of expensive a piece, $30, $40. But there were about a dozen clients where we didn't have a salesperson living close to that client. So there was one client that happens to be um, a firearms manufacturer. We wanted to gain them as a client. No politics yeah. on, the, on that, just we wanted them mm -hmm. as a client. So we mailed them this video card. Again, you know, the size of a book and it had a video screen in it. Right. It just so happens that when the video card arrived, it was flagged through the mail. Because I'm sure they get lots of threats and all kinds of things, mm -hmm. given the politics behind, you know, that right Industry, by the Constitution. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. and all the ensuing, you know, carnage that's happened for the misuse of firearms and mm -hmm. all of that. But anyway. They call the uh, they call the state police, the FBI, the ATF, and the local police. They all come out with a bomb squad because they're convinced the Franklin Covey video card perhaps is a threat. Well, of course, it wasn't. Uh, I had to do some damage control with our own uh, board of yeah. directors and the yeah. risk and audit committee and all of that. And I owned public relations, but the point was it was kind of ironic that a card on trust was was you know <laughs> uh, developing the bomb squad to come, but. What mm -hmm. I realized is I probably should have thought through, does this technology you know, have some issues around it? I probably did not sit around with a group of people differently than me to say, okay, so how will these yeah. cards enter organizations, right? Are there mail rooms? Are there security issues? Should we mail them at all to the federal government? You know, I mean, we are yeah. one of the, um, I think it is the Department of the Treasury is one of our big clients. They don't get any mail. All the mail goes to an off-site sorting center, right, for anthrax and all mm -hmm. kinds of things. And then it might get delivered to you. It might not. The point there is it was a huge mess. We managed to contain that the client wasn't offended original or after some time. And we talked them off of it. And we didn't land them as a client. But it yeah. was a sobering reality of probably what a group think, right? And me not surrounding myself by different people in the division to say, okay, what could go wrong? What's the downside of this? What should we be aware of as opposed to charging ahead? Genius idea. And in some cases, it was a masterful idea. Thousands were delivered. Hundreds of CEOs showed up to events. We had a wildly successful tour. But in hindsight, I probably didn't surround myself with people of different points of view, different thinking to help me brainstorm what could go wrong and could we anticipate it? And the big learning there was don't mail video cards, just well, hand deliver them, a yeah. trusted source. Well, but you know, there's an important management lesson that you share there, Scott. It seems like there's overlap sometimes between a, a marketing mess and a management mess. But I think of different workplaces where um, leaders, it's, it's, it's for one thing, as you were saying, surround yourself with, with people with um, different backgrounds and different perspectives that is really valuable. But then asking a question like, you know, uh, what concerns 
do any of you have about this? And then being open to the answer. Like that, that's one thing I think has been interesting in healthcare. There are times where people are taught to use the phrase, I have a concern mm. if they're speaking up in a yeah. hierarchical situation. Because yeah. I, I think some of the thinking behind that is, you know, it's a statement of fact. Yeah. If I say I have a concern, it's hard for you to say no, you don't. But right. as a right, you know, but yeah. but again, like you know, the leader, whether that's a surgeon or a chief medical uh, marketing officer, um, got to be open to that feedback and not be dismissive or, or do other things that um, and create the culture, yeah. right? Create the environment where people feel safe to speak up. It doesn't mean that they're going to have the right solution or that you even need to address their solution ultimately. But to create a culture as a leader where it is safe for people to disagree, mm-hmm. speak up, and it's to say to them. I may not adopt your concern. I may not share your concern, but certainly you can speak up, right? And share what is your your intent, which is to help improve. Yeah. And I, I see traps sometimes in different organizations where leaders will say after the fact, um, they should have spoken up. And I think, well, wait a minute. I think that's pointing the finger in the wrong direction. If if that culture wasn't there, yeah. if, if, if yeah. it's not a trust environment, um, well, one of it's the understandable. I write about, Mark, sorry, I interrupted you. That's right. One of the challenges I write about is that point you make, which I say to, to sales leaders and marketing leaders, but to any leader. If your people are lying to you, not because they're bad people, because they're, you know, they're saying, I'm going to hit my quota for the quarter and then they miss it, or they say something's arrived, but it hasn't, right? If people are lying to you as a leader, that says more about you mm-hmm. than it does about them. It means you have not created a safe culture where people can deliver bad news. As a job, your leader is to accept and solve bad news all day long, not wrong news. There's a difference between bad news and wrong news. And I spent a lot of time educating my team members around wrong news and bad news. But if your people are lying to you, or to your point, they're not admitting their mistakes or talking about their issues, nine times out of 10 is because as the leader, you have not created a culture Mm -hmm. where you make it safe for others to share bad news, to challenge status quo or to risk pissing you off because they may disagree with you. That takes some growth mm-hmm. on every leader's path. So what was part of your growth, Scott? You 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 read the book Multipliers. You had this epiphany, this awakening, this recognition, whatever you might call it. Did you then sort of open up with your team and and, yeah. and bring bring this up uh, as, yeah. as a topic? I did. You? I did, which is my which is my nature, right? I mean, here was my big epiphany. Uh, at the time, I was the chief marketing officer. I was a named executive officer on the executive team in a public company. And I find myself at every executive team meeting saying, well, what if we? Well, what if we? Well, what if we did this? And what if?" And then I, I was this fountain of ideas. And because I was fairly influential, I was somewhat charismatic, and I had a budget, and I had 25 years in the firm, I would have very talented, very well-educated executives chasing all of my solutions and I became a distraction. I think what I became was a really valuable gap closure leader, a really valuable, let's fix it this way, very tactical versus being very strategic, kind of holding back, letting the team sort of think and talk through the strategy and the problem. And then when it was time, I could offer a bevy of solutions, but I was just sort of a solution always looking for a problem. Now, the fact of the matter is our market cap tripled under my leadership. The stock went from mm-hmm. 6 to $30. There were some great things, of course, that I did along with the broader team and company. But as I look back, when I share with my team, I it was time for someone else to take my job. Mm. 
it wasn't, I, I wasn't being fired. I could have still been in the job now, but I like to disrupt myself. I like to stay ahead of the boot. I like to always relieve myself of my job a year or two before anybody else begins to think about it. I, I, yeah. I hate and I love this adage. And Mark, that is, you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. Right? Mm. If you're the CEO, the board is deciding it in private. Mm. If you're the senior vice president, the CFO and the CEO are deciding it for you. If you're a frontline sales manager, right? You're never in the room when your career is being decided for you. And I didn't want that to be the story of my career. So I quite sure. proactively moved myself out of that job, not because I was a mess, because I had messes and they were also you know, diminishing other people. I needed to go find my voice on the next phase of my career. Well, the one thing you talked about there when you were throwing out the what if we, what if we, there, there, there are questions that aren't really questions or they are questions that get interpreted as a directive depending on the personalities in the room. What if we do such and such might be heard as we need to do That's right. such and such. That's right. And sometimes leaders aren't aware of that. They don't intend, sometimes it's different between extrovert, introvert. Of like, hey, I was just thinking out loud. And the introvert assumes, well, if you said it, you must have thought about it a lot and you've made a decision as opposed to, I'm just thinking out loud. Those disconnects Mark, what happen. what you share is so profound. In fact, Liz Wiseman said, before she wrote the book Multiplier, she was an executive level leader at the Oracle Corporation for 18 years. And she said she was an idea fountain. Mm. And that finally on her door at Oracle, which was like a whiteboard, she wrote in big writing, ignore me as needed to get your job done. <laughs> and I thought that's so great. It just shows like a mature leader to realize, you know what? I'm going to have lots of ideas and I'll tell you when they are directed. Well, you'll know the difference between me having an idea party and you actually now having to change priorities, execute on this. But I do think that self-awareness, to your point, is so invaluable. As leaders, you've got to know what it's like to work for you. What's it like to execute a project for you? What's it like to be in your staff meeting where you're just going off? People are wondering, how the hell, right? Was, is, mm -hmm. this, is this all supplant last week's ideas? Or is this? And so as a leader, not only do you make it safe for others to tell you their truth, mm -hmm. you make it safe for them to give you feedback and talk to you about, you know, boss, which of these 19 things should I start first? Right. And I, and I had the epiphany in my late 40s, like 49, during this time where I realized I needed to hold back. That my power, my influence, my credibility wouldn't be any less. In fact, it mm -hmm. might even be more if I was quiet for an hour in the CEO's meeting. <laughs> and then when it came time for the marketing guy to opine, I would be E.F. Hutton, right? Not, you know, Scott Miller. <laughs> and I dated myself for your viewers. I, I remember the E.F. Hutton commercials. People can search YouTube for that if they're not. Yeah, profound, actually. Uh, but I, I think, you know, there's this tendency. You know, a lot of organizations encourage leaders to be the all-knowing, infallible, unquestionable expert. Um and, and, and that builds over the course of someone's career or that expectation is there, where I, I think of a distinction, I think a powerful thing in a company, I think a positive trait is when people feel safe to answer a question by saying, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Let's find out. I don't know. Let's figure it out. I don't know. Let's go try. I mean, I'm curious if you've run across that dynamic. Is that one of, well, it, it sounds like one of the management yeah. messes that 
you you might. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it, again, this is why your podcast is so popular is because your insights are right on. It, it, it comes to the kind of culture you want to create, right? I mean, people are not an organization's most valuable asset. That human resource adage has long been debunked. It's the relationships between your people that are your ultimate competitive advantage. So you're really, you know, every company is now a technology company and every company is in, is in the same business of people, right? It, it, yeah. These are now adages that are ubiquitous across all businesses. So leaders have to recognize that you may have 30 years of experience. What you likely have is one year of experience repeated 29 <laughs> times. And you're doing the same things over and over again. And you got to be emotionally agile enough and intellectually nimble enough and really self-aware enough to realize, are there other ideas that, that challenge yours now? And you aren't supposed to be the expert on everything. If you're working for someone who is an expert in operations, supply chain, marketing, finance, <laughs> accounting, sit, run, run from that person, right? Because it's only a matter of time between well, their perfectionism and omniscience crushes your spirit and your soul. Instead, it's a word. Yeah. be the talent magnet, right? Just be the magnet bringing in all this genius talent. And, and, and there's, I mean, this is a workplace dynamic. It's also... Uh, a dynamic on on social media, or there's the expression that gets thrown out, like "Oh, so now you're an expert in uh, immunology and vaccines, huh?" I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. Well, we can look to the top of the nation for that one for the last couple of years. <laughs> well, that was, you know, no politics there. It's just if you want your credibility to be respected, you don't have an opinion mm-hmm. on everything, right? You bring well, you bring yourself to the recognition as a leader. My job is to bring the best expert talent around me as possible. Kind of like the role the cabinet plays to the president. I write in the book, Marketing Master Brand Success, that I think the most valuable group of people around the U.S. president is her, his or her cabinet, right? Mm-hmm. Is to bring experts into opine on issues where ultimately they have to make the decision, but it's not in a vacuum, hopefully. Right. So surrounding yourself with people and giving them permission to challenge you and disagree is, I mean, we're in agreement that that's a trait you would want to see in a family, in a business, at the highest levels of government. And, and, and like, yeah, not, not to spend too much time on it, but I think it is just a factual observation. We could see it with our own eyes of the former president would say things like, oh, I'm, you know, they, I went and visited uh, the CDC and they were amazed about how I knew so much about this. And it's just that constant bragging of, I know the most about this, that's... I think, I, I, I tell you, I tell you, I think there was serious, merely irreparable damage done there on what we look to leaders mm-hmm. for, how we view leadership. To your point earlier, it is, you know, sometimes in my wildest dreams, I imagine I'm the president, I'm having a press conference. Like, how would I handle this situation, right? I mean, what would I say? You're, and you got your PR people saying, well, don't show weakness. And you got your brand people saying, well, you know, don't tell all the truth, right? And at the end of the day, you might just say, you know what? We need to have a talk. And some of you aren't going to agree with me. Some of you did not Mm -hmm. vote for me. Some of you did. Some of you are going to, you know, support me and some of you are not, but I'm here to give you the facts and the information. And then you can determine how you want to action on them at your own level. But there is a level of transparency that is, I think, an invaluable leadership currency is sharing the truth. Your opinion on the truth is your politics. But as a leader, I'll tell you, people can handle bad news. What they can't handle is no news or wrong news or made up news. Sure. And I do think there has been some damage on how we view leadership from a character standpoint. Right. 
but also from a competence standpoint. I'm a lifelong member of a party of that man. Um, but I think we got to relook at the characteristics we view as right. being, you know, comprising great leaders. It'll come back around. Yeah. And uh, one, one example, I guess we're, you know, we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, before the 2016 election, I wrote a blog post where I would call out a leader from either party. Yeah. But the statement was, uh, whoa, when I was in business, I was a great leader because people did what I told them to do. And I'm like, I reject that 100%. Was that the 40s? Was it the was it Henry Ford? Who said that? Was this feudal England times? I mean, I know, it, it's, I know. It's, it's, I, it's kind I, of I don't get it. And again, this is, you know, we'll keep our political opinions off. I'll keep mine off your show, but you're right. I mean, this command and control style leadership, it's gone with the, the younger generation flooding the marketplace. And thank goodness right. for this fresh, vibrant talent we have coming in. That ain't going to work anymore. Right. I mean, that those days are over. And we're talking, you know, we're talking the leadership components here. And, you know, the one time I had uh, the blessed opportunity to um, do a one-on-one -on -one conversation with um, Dr. Stephen R. Covey for a different podcast series, he actually brought up the phrase command and control and how yes. damaging yeah. that is in organizations. So, they, you know, they, these are, these are the leadership concepts, but um, back, back to one of your other books, though, on management mess. One thing I wanted to ask you before we uh, wrap up, Scott you, you talk about uh, management. You've got a book about people deserving a great manager. Yes. People love sometimes uh, to, to, to no end debating the words manager versus leader. Are they yeah. synonyms? Do they yes. really mean different things? What, what's your thought on that? Yeah. To your point, I'm not really caught up on this, but I could, I could hold my own, right? And if someone wants to debate me on it, uh, 30 years in the leadership development industry, I did author a book called Everyone deserves a great manager, the six critical practices for leading a team. I actually didn't like the name because Seth Godin is a dear friend of mine and he was like thrashing me over manager. And of course, lead, Dr. Covey spent his whole life talking about leadership. I hear, mm -hmm. you know, management is also referred to as, you know, manage things and processes, leadership, lead people and culture. Mm -hmm. You man Management is working in the system. Leadership's working on the system. Yeah. Here's what I think. I think there are times when managers can be better leaders. And I also think there's times when leaders can be better managers because in some cases we've elevated leaders to, you know, vision and mission and culture mm. and strategy, but they can't manage the P&L. They can't determinate someone and save their life. They, they can't, you know, literally manage a pipeline of opportunities to make sure you actually hit your quarterly financial commitments. So I think sometimes leadership can be, so aspirational where mm -hmm. nothing gets done. It's all about consensus building and building culture. Yes, that's important. And you got to deliver on your second quarter revenue and EBITDA promises to your investors or your analysts will skewer you and your stock will go to $6. So there is a fine balance of knowing when to manage, including manage people. Some people need to be managed at certain parts of their career. And when do you lead people? And then when do you manage systems versus when do you Lead systems. My, I don't mean this to be convenient, but I think it's just a delicate balance, like clutching the gas, right? Is yeah. when I was 15, my father horrifyingly taught me, of course, how to, you know, drive a stick shift Jeep. There's all kinds of lurching back and forth, and you know, but it's that delicate. Now it's effervescent, right? Now it's just done unconsciously. I don't even think about it. My wife, who is much more talented than I am in every aspect of life, cannot get our car up the hill. We have a vintage Volkswagen <laughs> to save her life. She could not drive the car up the hill. 
three weeks from now, when she put the time into it, she would do it naturally, right? Like management leadership, you got to kind of pay the price to know when to use either. And it becomes reflexively unconscious, gas and clutch. And it seems like the, 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 the pendulum swings back and forth. Um, you know, there are different eras where, you know, there's some eras where books come out. Like, I think the you know, former CEO of Honeywell had a book called Execution. And, you know, uh, right, some Larry people Bossy, talk about, right? very bossy, that's right. And some people talk about, you know, um, you know, the, you know, the execution being 95% of the battle. And, you know, th- these are just numbers and expressions. But um, yeah, you're right. Sometimes it's seen as fun and glamorous. I mean, I see sometimes healthcare management students come out of their master's program and they want to go into a job in strategy because I think school has convinced them that's cool, that's sexy, that's and 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 I think well it's at some point boy you've got to go into operations and see how the organization really works on a day-to-day basis. We need both. I'm with you. We need strategy, we need um, execution. Um but yeah, sometimes people get too fixated on, on one or the other. Because I would say the best operations without any strategy yeah. uh, would be a problem. So I think back of the history of, of Franklin Covey, the company, and I, you know, at some point it was Franklin. I mean, in the mid-90s, I carried a Franklin planner. The leather bound, I bought the paper inserts for it every year. Like at some point, I'm sure that was a good cash cow business. But then I got a half million dollars, half billion dollars. But then I got a palm pilot. Right. And yeah. so the world changed. Franklin, yeah. or at one point, you know, it became yeah. Franklin Covey. There was yeah. a need for strategy and evolution, not just better execution of what they did. Yeah. We, we, have, invent, we have reinvented ourselves, you know, three or four times. In fact, we were actually the largest reseller of Palm Pilots mm. in the nation as we were also trying to kind of make that migration. You know, what's interesting is to that point, we, we have long since divested ourselves from the retail stores and the consumer paper planning business, but it actually still does pretty well. Think about it. I mean, I've probably got two or three systems on my desk. I still capture notes. Yeah. I mean, paper has never been more relevant. We're still using it. It's just kind of how you use it, how you integrate it into your system. I, I love that you and I are both um, organizational nerds. Only you could pitch to me <laughs> the CEO of Honeywell in the 80s, and I could tell you his name was Larry Bossy. <laughs> We've dated ourselves. That's a great book, by the way. Well, and um, we'll, 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 I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, one of the EF Hutton commercials. When EF Hutton talks, people listen, right? I love that. Thank you. Um, so our guest here today, this has been a lot of fun, Scott. Our guest has been Scott J. Miller. Uh, his book coming out May 11th will be available when you hear this, actually. Um, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, 30 Challenges to Transform Your Organization's Brand and Your Own. So, um, and there are other books, um, you can find them all, I'll link to Scott's Amazon listing and there are future books to come. Uh, the website is marketingmessbook.com. Is that probably the best place for people to go, Scott? Yep. That's great. You also can find me at scottjeffreymiller.com. Connect to me, follow me, uh, message me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of them, but marketingmessbook.com. Looks great. Thank you, Mark. And again, the podcast is on leadership with Scott Miller. Um, final, final sure. question. I mean, can you do you remember a guest that had an interesting mess story that they told? I'm putting you on the spot. You've talked to a lot of great people. You know, we've had 150 episodes. We've got some great guests coming up. Bill Gates is coming up. Oh wow. Uh, Melinda Gates. We've got some amazing guests coming up. You know, Matthew McConaughey, you mentioned him earlier, uh, was a great guest. 
uh, better than I thought he might be, actually. His book, Green Lights, is still number one audio book in the nation. I highly recommend his book, Green Lights. It's a raw, this continuous series of messes in his life, right? Hmm. But he shared a concept from a friend of his. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bastardize it here. But he basically said, you know, I've had thousands of problems in my life only of which a few ever really materialized. I mean, I got that wrong, but it's just a great point to think, you know, we spend so much time worried about all these things that will happen, but the vast majority of them don't. And I like that line because like, yeah. like his uncle, his friend's uncle, I spend a lot of my time thinking about what can go wrong. As an officer, I'm, you know, big into contingency planning and I'm a husband, I'm a father of three and I'm responsible for four people's lives, you know, in a certain part of their life. and so. I tend to be, um, I love a good crisis. I love a good crisis. And if one doesn't exist, oh, I'll cook one up to crisis level for the adrenaline, right? I do my best work in crisis mode. So I feel like Matthew McConaughey's mess was the fact that, you know what? Most of your messes aren't going to come true. So just own those that do and teach through them so others can avoid them and have a higher batting average on their success. Wow. So thank you for sharing that story, Scott. Um, I haven't listened to that episode yet, so I will go and find it and I'll encourage the listeners to go check it out. It's good. It's good. He's chill. He, he makes me, I mean, he's, he's, we're polar opposites, right? <laughs> he is as chill as he portrays himself. And it was very insightful. I mean, don't underestimate that man. He is uh, potentially running for governor here in the state of Texas. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. It will be interesting to see. You'll have a chance. Um, so again, Scott Miller, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us today. Mark, thank you. For show notes, links to Scott's work and books and more, go to markgraven.com slash mistake100. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.